Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I always get a kick out of just seeing you know, how the list develops. It tends to change a bit over time and often starts off with what you might regard as the iconic um, species, the, you know, the ratas and pahutakawas and the kofais and the like. And then as time goes on, we start to see the emergence of some of the really, you know, unusual, perhaps cryptic, small herbaceous species. They start to make an appearance. And I guess this, you know, this mistletoe I'm going to show you now is perhaps one of my little favourites, and it might be what I end up voting for. Um, I hope you'll agree once you've seen it. All right. Well, let's go have a look. So brace yourself. The, the uh, dark horse contender for fave plant. You've heard it here first. Namihi, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Clerken Cannon Thene. John Barclay is the president of the New Zealand Plant Conservation Network, a non governmental organisation focused on protecting New Zealand's native plants. And currently, the favourite plant competition that they run is heating up. John is keeping a keen eye on the leaderboard. This week, Our Changing World is all about plants. Later, Katie Gossett introduces us to a plant biologist focused on identifying the best management for an introduced plant that's important for many New Zealanders. But first, back to the Dunedin town belt, where I've met up with John to talk about native New Zealand plants. John grew up in Taranaki. He studied agricultural science in university and then joined the Department of Conservation after the environmental restructure in 1987. Though retired from full-time work now, John worked with Doc for more than 30 years. First, I asked him where this love of plants came from. You know, I think it came from, um, I grew up on a dairy farm in Taranaki and and we had several uh, gullies in in the back of the farm that were still clothed in native forest. And as a kid, I spent a lot of time just fossing around in those forests, exploring the streams and looking at the plants and um, got really, I guess that sort of piqued my interest. Mm. And then at university, I started um, doing some holiday work with, with the Forest Service, doing some really large-scale plant surveys um, throughout the, some forests in the North Island. And uh, so that helped improve my plant identification skills, and I just got deeper and deeper into it. And then finally ended up with a job where I could really indulge myself in, uh, in plant conservation. And some of the work that you have done in the past with DOC was around some of the more endangered or threatened plant species. Yeah, yeah it was. um, Most of my roles have been sort of a a technical role uh, involved in botany and and obviously for the department it was the the threatened plants that tended to um, get most attention. So that's what I tended to focus on and here in Otago... um, well, it's good and bad, I suppose. We've got lots of threatened plants to work on, but it's it's not great, obviously. Mm. But uh, with such a diverse region, you know, we've got some of the driest uh, landscapes and ecosystems in New Zealand, and they have their own suite of really special things under under particular threat. So uh, we used to spend a lot of time, certainly in Central Otago, working on those. But there are there are more local threatened species as well on our on the coast here around Dunedin, and um, even where we are now in the town belt of Dunedin City. Dunedin Town Belt is in the central urban area, and it covers more than 200 hectares across several suburbs. 
It's a highly modified version of the forested area that once stood around Dunedin, with both native and now exotic plants and trees. It does run through the city, so as we stand on the hill and move about the park, you'll hear sounds of earthworks and traffic in the background. I asked John about the numbers. How many native plants are there in New Zealand? But it turns out this isn't a simple question to answer. That's a bit of a moving feast. Um, Mm. There are around about 2,700 native plants in New Zealand. And I say round about because, you know, we keep finding new ones and um, people keep sort of splitting out ones that they thought we knew as well. So um, every year we seem to pick up a few more. How many of those are we deeply worried about in terms of their threat status? And is there a certain set of those that we just don't know enough about? Yeah. Like we, we, maybe we would be worried if we knew to be yeah. worried. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, they, they are excellent, excellent questions. Um, yeah, look, I was just looking at the stats this morning and um, I think over half of our native plants in New Zealand have some sort of degree of um, threatenedness, if you like. And in New Zealand, we have something called the, um, the threat classification system. Mm-hmm. And that divides um, our plants up into what we call threatened and those that are at risk. And um, I guess what's most disturbing is that you know, the highest category, nationally critical, and remember that's really only one step away from extinction. I think there are an order of about 200 plant species that, that fall within that category alone. And that's a category that's been increasing over, over time as well. So we're getting more and more threatened species, unfortunately. I mean, is it the same things that are impacting the plants as we know we're impacting, say, the bird life? So it's introduced mammalian predators that maybe chow down on the plants yeah. and the change of habitat. Yeah, yeah look, it, it, it's very similar. It, it's all of those things. It's habitat loss, um, a, lot of, a lot of negative interactions with animal pests, and, and particularly with plant pests as well. You know, plants uh, compete a lot for resources, for sunlight, for nutrients, and we've got an increasing burden of exotic plants that have come to New Zealand that are that have gone weedy, you know, and sometimes it takes a little while for them to do that. They sit around in the landscape for quite a while and then something changes and they suddenly become environmental weeds. So that's important. Uh, we also have a range of, uh, there are diseases as well that affect viral diseases and fungal diseases that affect our native plants. We have got, um, in some cases, it's, it's people, it's collectors as well, you know. Generally, the most important one is um, is habitat loss, you know, mm. and, and that's still going on. I mean, we're still, um, obviously, you're seeing uh, land use changes, um, conversions to dairy farms, for instance, or conversions to horticulture, to viticulture, and just expansion of, of our housing needs. Um, all of these impact on places that are often semi-natural, and these are the sort of habitats where our threatened plants are hanging out. When we think about plant, when we think about everything, you know, we like to sometimes set it into a little box because it's easier for us to think about it like that. But actually, it's part of a big, wide ecosystem. And especially when you're talking about some, you know, something as complex as a, a whole habitat, whether it's a forest habitat or a salt marsh habitat. And as well as the plants, there's, you know, fungal communities yeah, and yeah, bacterial exactly. communities, yep. but also birds that do the pollination yeah, yeah. or the dispersal. Yeah. How can we, I don't know, look at that bigger picture? It's an absolute conundrum and, and uh, you're right to, to be raising it because I think the answer is, is in looking at, as far as you can, not just 
single species conservation programs, but looking at the ecosystem that they would have occurred in, and I guess adopting um, you know ecosystem restoration programs that have elements of bringing in the threatened plants that would have normally occurred in there and, and trying to retain all those sort of links that, that you were hinting about, the links between the fungi and the soil and the links between the birds that do the pollination and the, um, the, the movement of the seed around. It's, it's all of those things. Unfortunately, I guess with the most threatened plants, you kind of get forced into having to deal with them on their own because if you don't, you might lose them. Uh, whereas common sense would tell you you really want to involve them as part of the wider community, part of the wider ecosystem. And where we've got the luxury of time to do that, that's clearly the, the sensible way to approach it and the most cost-effective way to approach it. But we've got a whole bunch that, um, that kind of need special attention as well. And um, if we didn't deal with them, they, they could well go extinct. I mean, we've already seen probably six or seven extinctions of New Zealand native plants uh, in the past that, that we're aware of. And um, there's no reason why we, we couldn't see some more. When I rang him to organise this interview, I actually asked John in advance what his favourite plant was. And this seemed like the most difficult question of all for him. So today we're on the hunt, not for John's absolute favourite, because he can't quite choose, but a group of native plants he finds particularly intriguing. I've got a bit of an interest in in our mistletoes. You know, we've got eight eight species of mistletoe in New Zealand. Um, One, incidentally, went extinct in the 1950s, so, you know, that sadly is one of the the plants that we we did lose. But we've still got eight species, and we've got... um, five quite leafy, large leafy mistletoes and we've got three dwarf mistletoes and we've got examples of both the leafy ones and the dwarf ones uh, really within you know, just a few minutes walk of where we are so um, yeah, we might like to have a look at some of those. Yeah, let's go have a look. Cool. And when you say mistletoes I mean we're talking a relative of what you would um, kiss under at Christmas. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Yeah, so these are uh, shrubs that are um, semi-parasitic, or we call them hemiparasitic. So they're able to um, hook into their host's um, vascular system and get um, get the water and dissolve nutrients from them. But at the same time, they're able to photosynthesize and produce their own food. Oh. Okay, so. We're in a bit of a noisier position here, yeah. but I've just taken you to look at this Tupaya Antarctica mistletoe in front of us. It's a beautiful, large, uh, what, about one and a half metres by one metres, hanging from its host tree. And it's really green and it's, lush looking. It's lush and green, so it's got a lot of new growth on it, and I think if we get in close, we'll see that it's just finished flowering, and we've got the first little bit of developing fruit yeah. Just starting to appear on it now. How does it disperse? Is it birds? Yeah, so it, it produces um, a lovely fleshy fruit, uh, white to pink, even sometimes a little bit of blue, quite a pretty fruit. And the birds are attracted to that and they, they eat that fruit. And then um, later on they'll um, deposit that, it'll go through their system and they'll deposit that seed, that sticky seed, onto hopefully another host branch. Uh, and the seed then simply germinates and it's able to turn on itself and it's got special rootlet that penetrates the host and gets underway. So that's very, very cool. Yeah, I can see it just growing out of the branch. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. 
It's pretty neat to see this mistletoe growing out of the branch of the tree. But the mistletoe tour isn't over. There's more to come. So we're going to go for a wander down onto the Bullock Trek. Old historic route down towards Woodhoe Garden and the alluvial podocarp forest down there. And I want to show you another mistletoe. But I think this one will really surprise you. I've gone on walks with birders before and I have to say they walk very slowly you know <laughs> like looking for birds in the bush and in the trees up around are botanists the same but even more so oh boy you'd, you'd find a walk with a, with a birder really fast compared to some of our botanical walks and uh, particularly um, if you go with people who are interested in um, perhaps the lichens mm-hmm. and the fungi you know they can spend all day uh, within sort of like 100 metres of the car park and be really happy and find all sorts of interesting things. So um, not so good if you're looking for a, a good workout for the day. OK. Um, but incredible when you think that there's just so much to look at in, a, in just a short piece of, um, of forest, for instance, or a track margin. So these mistletoe that we're going to look at, mm. I mean, is this just from you strolling through the town belt and having a look around? Yeah, look, um, these little mistletoes in particular, they, they're very much, um, you need to get your eye in for them, and otherwise you, you'll just walk straight past them. But once you do, once you've spent a little bit of time studying them and looking for them, you keep seeing them, that's the amazing thing, and you, you, know, you can't walk anywhere without seeing little mistletoes popping up. So uh, it's, it's really neat. Okay. Now, this is great because we've actually got two species of mistletoe in the same host bush here. Okay, so we're looking at a bush of Caprosma crassifolia. It's about uh, two metres tall and it's in full sun. And in front of us we've got a big leafy mistletoe, but that's not the one I've taken you to see. I want you to come closer and we're going to look down into the foliage and there's this tiny little plant by my fingers here Oh. with, it hasn't even got true leaves, it's got flattened photosynthetic stems. So the plant's, what, we'd say it's about five centimetres long and the stems are maybe five millimetres across. And you didn't see it, did you? No, it didn't. It, it blends in so well. But now you'll probably see those wherever you go. <laughs> Yeah. And so does it get any bigger? It gets it gets a little bigger than that, but not not much bigger. And we have three. This is called um, Corthocella lindsayi, and we have three species of this Corthocella mistletoe, and all three um, can be seen around the Dunedin district. And again, that's just the roots are burrowed into that. Branch. Exactly. Same same scenario. Yeah, it's it's hooked into the plant's um, water supply, but as a green plant, it's also able to produce its own food. And it has, it has the most minute uh, flowers, really simple green flowers that you need a hand lens to see. And likewise the fruits that it produces are less than the size of a pinhead. And it's thought that they, they simply, um, those fruits simply just fall off and they fall onto the next branch below them. Which probably explains why sometimes you get a mass concentration in one tree, mm. but there must be some other longer distance dispersal mechanism that gets them from one host tree to another. 
That's very cool. So I'm going to plug for Cothocella lindsayi <laughs> as my favourite plant for this year. So John is off to the online polls to place his vote. But while he is canvassing hard for the dwarf mistletoe, the favourite plant competition isn't about individual plant glory for him, but rather one tool towards what he would like to see. A greater appreciation for native plants, especially those little ones underfoot that often get overlooked. I find that when people get shown really small little plants and they get in close, maybe get down on their hands and knees with a hand lens, and they start to look at the intricacies of a flower or a fruit, you know, which might only be the size of their um, fingernail, they suddenly get all excited about it, you know? So my wish is that we're able to um, really advocate properly for a lot of those poorly known species. We need to like bring them out into the light and really let people um, have an appreciation of just how rich the New Zealand flora is. Um, it's not just made up of big tall trees and a forest, you know, there's all these other elements that are equally exciting in their own way with lots and lots of special stories to tell about them. Thanks to John Barkler, President of the New Zealand Plant Conservation Network. If you want to vote for your favourite plant or learn more about native plants, you can do so on their website, nzpcn.org.nz. Now on to some research to improve the quality and growth efficiency of an introduced plant, the fruits of which some of us are very familiar with. Here's Katie Gossett. In these COVID times, wherever you are in the world, whether it's locked down within your bubbles or as alert levels relax, hanging out with a few friends, chances are you may have felt the need for a glass of wine. Hopefully a good wine, although that's kind of a subjective thing. I don't like sweet wines. If it says Shiraz, I'll buy it. There you go, simple. Uh, if so, I'm probably a red man. Probably rich, lean towards more of the Shiraz. I drink the peanuts because I don't give me headaches. <laughs> <laughs> and there are sometimes other elements in the mix when it comes to the perfect glass of wine. One that's been opened and poured when you walk in the door. Our price is important. And then Shiraz, I think. No, definitely not Shiraz. No, he only buys Shiraz if he doesn't want to share. Cheap Shiraz, can't get past those. <laughs> no, a nice Pinot Noir, preferably New Zealand, just to support the local wine industry. I like a good label, I like an interesting label. And I'm sure that over the centuries, many people have enjoyed an extra glass or two while trying to pin down that indefinable something that makes a great wine. And speaking of labels, some of us will also have perused the back of the bottle to read things like Delicate dark berry fruit flavours and earthy characteristics. The graceful richness of this wine perfectly complements a range of savoury cream dishes and pairs well with game birds and meat. We forgot the game birds. Oh, we did. That? You didn't bring any game birds. But as tempting as the back of the bottle can sound, it doesn't always mention those core elements that really affect wine quality. For example, sugar, acidity, and secondary metabolites like tannins and phenols. So that's Minu Mohoja, a plant biologist who's working on her PhD at Lincoln University. And when we're not locked down in COVID and recording interviews over the phone, apologies for the audio quality, she spends her days in vineyards, specifically studying grapevines and working out how to pull together all the elements that make wine taste good. Although she admits again that a good wine means different things to different people. It's difficult to say this is good or bad wine, but there are some elements that we can improve 
as I mentioned, like sugar and acidity and color. So environmental factors and management practices can affect these factors. So Minu's work is taking a closer look both at those environmental factors and vineyard management practices, in particular leaf removal, to see how they can affect the wine quality. What she says winemakers should be aiming for is a balanced vine. Balance between vegetative growth, like roots, shoots, leaves, and reproductive growth, like fruits. So for achieving this balance, one of key management techniques is leaf removal. So by this practice, which is common in vineyards and thousands of dollars are spent on this practice each year by vineyard managers, we're trying to meet different purposes and achieving a balance. And it's not just about the wine quality. Minu is also interested in yield and sustainability. So some of us might think that a vine that's heavy with plenty of grapes is a great thing, but that's not necessarily the case. There is a common belief among people that when we have a lot of grapes, it means we had a successful season. But it's not like this, because you need a balance in wine, because one year you might have uh, even harvest a lot of grapes, but the quality of wine and grape will be reduced. Or you might harvest a lot of grapes this year, but what about the following years? Because the vine has already used all the reserve carbohydrates in roots and shoots. So we need this balance. And that's where the leaf removal comes in. As Minu says, it's already a widely used management technique. For example, we know when we remove leaves around bunches, we will open a window to sunshine. So this sunshine can improve microclimate around bunches and could affect berry quality and improve berry quality. And it could directly affect the elements which create the wine quality. But Menu cautions this is where you have to go about things the right way because leaves also serve a purpose on the vine. Leaves are the main source of carbohydrates. So we should be really careful about removing them because if we remove it inappropriately, it will be detrimental to yield and grape quality. On the other hand, if we remove it appropriately, it could have lots of advantages. Because too many leaves can cause problems too. When we have a lot of leaves, it will increase disease rates. So the common practice is removing leaves around bunches, and they try to do it at a time which the risk of having negative effect on grapevine and grape quality is low. So it really is a balancing act, which is why Minu has undertaken to put some more information around this whole leaf removal business to try and give the best possible results. Every year farmers use these techniques, but the results are not always what they expect because the results depend on time of removal leaf, leaf position and environmental factors. So in my research, I compare these techniques at different times and a different environmental condition. Because she found that some of the finer detail around leaf removal was lacking. Based on my knowledge, there are not a lot of literature uh, about a comparison between different positions of leaf removal at different growing season times 
to see how it could affect on yield components, grape quality, carbohydrate reserve, and photosynthesis activity. So most of research concentrated on just one or two of these factors. So Minu is hoping to provide more comprehensive information about when during the growing season to remove leaves and from which part of the vine. But it's complicated by the fact that these two things are influenced by environmental factors. So we cannot just make a rule, I mean a permanent rule, that vineyards should remove at this time and this leaf position and it will work for all vineyards. So because of this point, I tried to work at two different environments, which was vineyard and glasshouse. So at glasshouse, I tried to remove and minimize environmental fluctuation and try to work in a sustainable environment to understand the real effects of this practice. Because in the vineyard, when you remove leaves, sometimes you're not sure that the results especially in terms of grape quality, if it's coming from leaf removal or if it's coming from environmental factors. Because when you remove leaves, you will change bunch microclimate. So I tried to remove these factors. As Minu was drilling down into this detail about leaf removal and the impact it could have, she tried to get the idea across to her friends and family, and that made her decide to enter Lincoln University's three-minute thesis competition, or 3MT. The idea is that students share their research with an intelligent but non-academic audience in a three-minute presentation. Because of COVID, this year it happened in the form of a video. Here's how she put it across. Imagine you have a vineyard. Which one do you prefer? The one at the top left with lots of grapes or the one at the bottom with many shoots and foliage but few grapes? I'm guessing most of you chose the top one. The one with heaps of grapes. But I'm sorry to say, you're all right. Her presentation found favour with the judges and Minu ended up the grand final winner and represented Lincoln University at the 2021 Virtual Asia-Pacific 3MT competition where she made it to the semi-final showcase. For me it was like a challenge to explain my research in a simple language to be understandable for all people and present how it could be important for farmers and winemakers. Minu's work is funded by an ag-research scholarship and it's part of a bigger project that aims to analyse Pinot Noir and understand what factors might affect its yield. She's hoping that down the track, winemakers will see the value of her research and realise what a more tailored approach to leaf removal could mean for their businesses. If you want to increase or reduce yield, or if you want to improve the quality, or if you want to reduce variability, in a bunch, or if you want to work on harvest time and delay, how I can help you, how my research could suggest you a specific time and position to meet this purpose. Do you drink wine yourself? Yes. What kind of wine do you like? I prefer Pinot Noir because I'm working on that. In fact, Minu may just be one of the few wine drinkers who appreciates the impact that leaf removal has had on what she's sipping. But she believes that others would be interested to know. It might be a little bit surprising for them to see how a simple practice 
could affect wine taste. But I think by explaining, they could understand exactly how it could be useful to change wine taste in terms of sugar level and acidity and color and in pigments of wine. So I think it makes sense for them if we explain them. And so I put that to this group of friends who are incidentally drinking New Zealand Pinot Noir and I explained the role of leaf removal. Well, I don't know if it was on the label, so I probably couldn't have selected it for that fact. Leaf removal. Wow. There's so much I don't know. (laughs) None of us are connoisseurs. (laughs) For this group, when it comes to buying wine, price point and label graphics are still likely to be part of the decision-making process. And who knows, maybe one day the details of leaf removal might even end up featuring on the label. But they say it's good to know that wine is continuously being improved. And for winemakers, research like Minu's that allows for more focused leaf removal is likely to help them better manage their vines and maybe keep us all enjoying a glass of quality locally grown wine. Thanks, Katie. Katie spoke to Minu Mohajer and some wine appreciators. This episode was produced by Katie Gossett and me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by Alex Harmer and Phil Benj. Thanks to Liz Garten for editing help. Tim Watkin is executive producer of Podcasts and Series. Our Changing Worlds website is at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You'll find photos, links and our extensive back catalogue of episodes. And you can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter there. And you can use the buttons on the website to follow the podcast on Apple, Spotify, iHeart or whatever podcast platform you use. If you want to get in touch with us, we are on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. Hopefully you've been inspired to vote for your favourite native plant, but you'll have to do so quickly. The voting closes on the 31st of October. You'll also have to vote quickly for Our Changing Worlds in the Listener's Choice category in the NZ Podcast Awards. In fact... Why don't you do that right now? Visit nzpodcastawards.com, click the blue button and type in Our Changing World. Too easy. Thanks so much for listening and for voting. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.